Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Lowell Rickliffs, CEO and co-founder of Traction Advising. In this episode, Lowell shared his experience from a buyer's perspective of SaaS businesses, the reasons to acquire versus buy, and how they evaluate potential acquisition targets. We then approached acquisitions from the seller side and talked about when the right time is for founders to think about an acquisition, the steps they should take before they begin the process, and the key metrics that will influence the valuation that they get. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is churn.fm. The podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Lowell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Lowell is the founder and CEO of Traction Advising, which specializes in helping B2B SaaS companies with over 5 million in ARR get acquired, and where he's helped over 30 technology companies get acquired. Prior to founding Traction, Lowell served as co-founder and CEO, a chairman, CEO of a $120 million public company a startup CRO, and a global VP of Rockwell. He's also a global mentor, investor, board member, and CEO coach. So my first question for you, Lowell, is you hear a lot about startups not being sold, but rather they're bought. Do you agree with this narrative? I do, but I think for different reasons than other people talk about it. Uh, I view selling a company from the buyer's perspective. I mean, just having been a part of acquiring you know, over a dozen companies. I knew the M&A process really well. I knew why, um, you know, Fortune 500 companies, um, mid-tier companies would buy in the process that it took to get through. So I look at like, what's the strategic fit from the buyer side? So we, we really approach selling a company as walking the buyers through the buying process. We try to find, we look at the different segments of why someone might buy your company. Like, is it a product extension? Is it geographic extension? Um, is it completely different, but do, do you sell to the same buyers that they do? Like, so your product is bought by um, the head of HR at SMBs, right? So it's just another product that they can buy that their existing sales force can sell into. So um, I, I think some people misunderstand that to believe that they shouldn't try to sell their company, that they should wait until someone reaches out to buy them. And I think that's a mistake because the reason companies are so aggressive at reaching out to try to buy you is they don't want to be a part of a process where they have to pay a premium. And if they can find you on their own, it might be a right fit and they might even pay what you're looking for. You will always get a better deal 
if there's competition. Uh, simplest example would be one of the companies we were a, a part of. Original offers were at 40 million due to competition and eventually sold for 110 million. So 70 million in value was created by the same people, same buyers, but their price went up because the fear of losing it to a competitor outweighed their desire to buy it. So FOMO caved in and then uh, the valuation went up. So yeah. it's very interesting, like the lens that you view it from as well. Obviously, like you say, having had this experience and as a buyer side, maybe we could start there. What are some of like, what would a typical process look like on an M&A side of things like uh, for companies? Do you start out internally with a sort of target uh, company or target idea in mind and then go out looking like, maybe walk us through what a typical process would look like on the buyer side? Yeah. So we would typically, you're representing the seller, right? In the, in the sales process or actually no more from the buyer side. So you mentioned you, uh, you acquired ah, the 12 different if you're companies a buyer. in the process. If you're sure. a buyer, what did that look yeah. like? Yeah. So a lot of what you'll see, a lot of it on the buyer side is what you'll see today. It depends on, so you've got financial buyers who have pretty aggressive marketing teams and they may reach out to hundreds and hundreds of companies and they're just really trying to uh, be on your radar. They may not be serious at buying at this point in time, but at a strategic, when you're looking at buying a company, you've got a, uh, you've got a need. You, know, you might be a, uh, for example, once we were a European company based in France, strong presence in Europe, and we wanted to move into the US and we could grow organically, but it's a big market. And so, you know, you look at how could we buy a company, probably a competitor that's already in that space that already has a, a footprint. And, and, and so we did. So we reviewed. Uh, the companies that were out there, uh, those that looked to be the best fit, both in size and in culture, the different metrics, um, the team that's that's involved in it, and then you know reach out, have some conversations. Are they interested in having that conversation? And it's delicate, right? Because particularly when you're talking to competitors about buying them, you you need to understand everything, but you don't necessarily want to share anything because they're a competitor. So it's a delicate dance. Um, to kind of build that level of trust and align expectations in future roles, combination of the entity. Um, one of the things that's important, I, I don't want to get too tactical through it all, but one of the things, once you get into it, you understand, all right, there's a strategic fit. Then you look at, well, the idea is one plus one equals three, right? Sounds simple, but then you, you, you'll literally take the PL of both companies and you'll match them up, you know, line by line. They're always a little bit different and try to under, understand. Well, we don't need to market two brands. We'll market one brand. So how much does that save? You know, and if we've got two products instead of one product, we've got multiple data centers. This is before, you know, AWS. Yeah. We only need one. How do we migrate from one to the other? So there, there are areas where you'll invest because you know it will cost more and there are areas where you can, you can save money. But at some point, every buyer has a combined model that they believe what the revenue growth will look like as a combined entity, what the cost structure will look like as a combined entity. And the idea is that that looks better as a combination of the entity than without. And then the other thing that I think is important is once, once a buyer is interested to the point where they're building out those models and those models look good, buying your company becomes a part of their future. So it's no longer something that would be nice to have. They now wake up every day imagining you as a part of their future. So losing that um, is something that they, they don't want to happen, which is when they'll often pay more as a result or give you favorable terms. Okay. Yeah. And in that sense, so from a buyer side of things, like they almost really um, putting that into the projections side as well and sort of saying, okay, like modeling this out, bringing this new business in, what's that going to do to revenue? How's this going to improve growth over time? 
Uh, and like I said, they're already like seeing that future unfold in front of them. So I can definitely see how the FOMO can kick in then as well when it maybe progress a little yeah. bit, but to pull back and uh, it's maybe part of some aggressive targets that need to be hit elsewhere from other obligations that they've been made, uh, whether yeah. that's in the public yeah, or private markets. Uh, yeah, because you're often fighting against buy versus build, right? It's, uh, you know, we could build this, but we already have a backlog that's three years out. But if we buy it, we could have it today. And and whether it's a product or a new country, that's, that's often with a strategic, that's often, the, I almost guarantee that that discussion will happen internally. So why is, how does this advance them to reach their goals? At the end of the day, the buyer only cares about their reaching their objectives. And most companies struggle to hit their growth targets, right? I mean, most companies that you talk to, very few year in, year out are exceeding their, their, their targets for organic growth. So often they'll augment that with um, acquiring companies to offset that. For sure. And I think, yeah, it's like a, just a delicate balance that needs to be struck. And when you said like the build versus buy, I think that is definitely uh, one of the things often in my mind, and maybe you can like correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you think about like the build versus buy concept, I think for a lot of bigger, these strategic organizations, it almost like the buying pays itself off within like 12 months, 18 months. Like, are there any sort of calculations where you're coming in and you're saying, okay, we're going to make this acquisition, but anticipate it's going to do X amount of revenue. Is there any sort of time period where you, like the payback period that you set when setting out sort of an acquisition target? I would say if uh, the, <clears throat> the financial buyers in particular, you know, they've got their internal rates to return, you know, they, they, they will look at what, what's the return on their investment. So they're very locked into that. In fact, that's, that's the basis from which they make decisions is what's, what's the financial return because their goal is to make money on invested money, right? At, at, the, at the end of the day, they're, they're banks. Uh, where a strategic really has a business that they're trying to operate. So it's, it's less tied to sort of that return on the investment. I mean, it is, it's more, you know, hitting the strategic targets, which at the end of the day always comes back to revenue, revenue or profitability, right? One or, or both of those. And they will have, targets in place to to uh, kind of guide their decisions to make that happen all right so we've talked a little bit about the buyer side now and uh, from the perspective of strategic uh, let's talk a little bit about the seller side now from a startup founder uh, as you mentioned like you typically work with companies doing over five million in ARR first of all like when is it time for a founder to actually start to think about like initiating this process and what would be some of the metrics that you would say, okay, like this is where I'd want to see a business before they even start thinking about looking for a buyer? Yeah. yeah. Good question. Um, I, get, I get asked that a lot when entrepreneurs will call and, and they'll say, you know, when, when should I sell? It depends on a lot of things. They're kind of, you've, got, you've got personal and then I think business reasons for wanting to sell. Sometimes, uh, typically people are five to 10 years into the business. Companies that end up in that sort of five to 10 million range are typically... Uh, linear growth companies. So they, they didn't hit that hockey stick, that exponential growth that, that they had thought they might hit when they were new. Uh, those are good businesses. Those are great businesses, honestly, in that area. I would advise someone if they do have that exponential growth that, that they, they might not want to sell. They might want to realize that exponential growth because the company will be worth exponentially more if they can hit those targets. But you've got on the personal side, I do see some people five, six, seven, 10 years in that either 
want to de-risk their personal balance sheet, right? They may, they may not have any money. It's all, but they're on paper. They're worth quite a bit in the company. And so they want to de-risk their balance sheet. So become a, a part of something larger, take some, some chips off the table. They may have some institutional money, right? They, they these funds have a 10 year life cycle. Uh, they may have gotten it in the middle of the fund. You know, five years later, the fund is looking to liquidate their investors. So there may be pressure from investors to liquidate. There could be um, some macro level um, issues that are that are affecting things. For example, you may be in an industry that <clears throat> that wasn't that hot, but then COVID may have made that industry particularly hot, which can be good and bad because it will create winners and losers, right? If you've got uh, you know Microsoft and 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 companies that that will take out a competitor uh, at billion dollar valuations or start investing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars into that space. Well, the space is now hot, which is good, but it also makes it that much more difficult for you to compete if you're a 6 million ARR company that's that's kind of bootstrapped, running on your own way. So you'll see a lot of consolidation start to happen when industry becomes hot and big, big players get taken out. So that's a good reason to consolidate because if you get left behind, you, you're, you're, you risk that your company may be worth less. So there are there are a lot of reasons, um, and some of them are personal, you know, and some of them are are business related. So it really just depends. And often we'll we'll just talk people through the different issues that they're discussing. We don't have all of the answers. We sometimes have thoughts and feedback that we can give, but it's a matter of weighing all of that in the 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 risk of of continuing to run on your own and the reward of running on your own uh, versus the risk of um, of of waiting. You know, another thing that that comes up quite a bit: valuations, public market valuations over the past three years. Now, if we were having this conversation three months ago, maybe four months ago, you know, had doubled, right? I mean, they were, they were exotic public. The private valuations, particularly for the smaller companies, hadn't quite doubled. They'd maybe gone up 50%. Now you see some of the public company valuations drop. The private valuations haven't dropped as much. So they're, they're similar, but people do worry. You know, with, with, basically free money out there for the last number of years, valuations were able to run up pretty high. As interest rates rise, you know, a lot of this is fueled by leveraged buyouts. As money gets more expensive, you know, the, the expectations for return come down and the multiples kind of come down with it. So sometimes people want to, there's been a bad rush in the last year for people that say, hey, the, the multiples are as high now as they've ever been in history. I want to get out before things collapse, right? Because you've got rising interest rates, you've got, um, you've got a war, you've got a lot of things that are going on that um, probably aren't good for the global economic picture. Like where it ends up, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but some people are worried. Yeah, for sure. I think you definitely, like you said, three, four months ago, like that would probably like the peak and sweet spot. Uh, if you're ever thinking about selling uh, your company, I think for the foreseeable future, at least, like I think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the markets now. And this is maybe also something to think about. So obviously there's the timing and you mentioned like there's different personal reasons and there's other motivations and reasons why you want, but the timing in the markets, like, is there sort of a such a thing as can you time the markets or it's like, what do you advise your customers typically? So has your advice changed today as you had like three, four months ago when it comes to like helping a company find uh, a buyer? I, you know, I, Again, it's, I don't think you can really time the market, right? If you look at the, the public stock markets, um, I th think you're more lucky than good if you really know. And, and trust me, this comes from a, a, a background of, of 30 years of thinking I could. 
and trying and seeing multiple trends, including disasters and thinking I knew when to cash out and then sit on it and wait till it hit a low. And then, it, you know, and it just turns out you, you, you really can't, the smartest people in the world try to time it. And I, I don't think you really can. I, I would say the, the valuations are, are high right now. I, I would say unsustainably high, particularly for the, the CDE rounds for fundraises that, that just, it just didn't make sense. I think they're coming back down to more realistic levels. But on the M&A front, I think the valuations are, I, I think they're high, but they're reasonable. I think it, it, it makes business sense for them to be where they are. I don't think they'll collapse anytime soon. I don't think they'll go a lot higher. But, you know, in 2007, we didn't think they would drop, you know, and they did, right? There was, there was a liquidity problem then. You, you couldn't get access to money. So you couldn't leverage buyouts. So the, the, the multiples, the market just dried up. I mean, you just absolutely couldn't sell a company. So could something like that happen again? It, it could. Can you predict those things? Um, I can't. So I, I think it's tough to predict it. Um, yeah, that's the short answer. I don't think, I think it's tough to predict. Cool. And the, the next question I had for you is you sort of mentioned that 5 million AR companies get acquired. Like why that specific number? Like what is it about companies above that threshold um, that you like to work with? So it really comes down below a million. You can sell your company, but it's really hard. You've got to find like the right fit. And part of that is it, it costs the buyer anywhere from on the low end, two to 300,000, you know, on the higher end you know, close to a million bucks, what they'll spend in expenses to, to buy the company. And you, so you've got that expense. So do you really want to spend a million bucks to buy a million bucks in revenue? It's like, is that really a good use of money? The other thing is most companies are trying to move the needle with the revenue, at least to some degree. You know, they, they want the team, they want the tech, they want the capability behind the tech, but, but they want to bump the needle on the revenue. So, you know, if you're a, a hundred million dollar company and you buy a five million company, you know, 5% is decent, like that moves the needle. But if you're a billion dollar company and buy a company with 1 million in revenue, it just doesn't move the needle. So, so that makes it difficult. There are so, yeah, you, there just aren't many, you, you've, you've proven, I, and I don't want to minimize how hard it is to get to million bucks. It's super hard, but at two to three, you're a little bit more viable. Um, it, but you'll have fewer choices. When you get above five to six million, it moves the revenue needle a little bit. You know, for most companies, it's it's noticeable, and it's easier to see a path from five to fifty than it is from like one to fifty. It's still a bit of a stretch. You've usually built out a fair amount more infrastructure, but I I kind of coach people. People usually think about what's my company worth, and then I, I tell them you know structure will matter more than the price. Right, a twenty million dollar offer that's all cash at close is very different than five million cash at close and. 10 million in private stock and an earnout, right? I mean, those also you say, wow, that's really risky. So I think it's, um, it, it, it depends a lot on, on what the structure looks like as well, not, not just the, the total value. Yeah. So obviously there's then like different aspects to this to consider as well going in. Um, one of the things that we haven't really touched on then is sort of specific metrics. So one of them being like the AR target. And I think it makes sense in terms of what you mentioned now, having being something really significant in terms of revenue because then it makes financial sense for the end buyer as well. And it really moves the needle maybe in terms of their revenue targets and so forth. But are there any specific metrics that founders should be really like focused on? And um, in your opinion, what would be said like the top three metrics that potential buyers are looking to see uh, when acquiring a company? Yeah, it. 
I would tell you, I would even start with, you know, historically companies were bought on multiples of EBITDA, so of profitability. SaaS, I feel like really kind of created the whole concept of companies actually being bought on multiples of, of revenue, being valued on multiples of revenue. And there's a reason behind it. And it really comes down to growth and retention. Those are the two primary reasons people pay premiums for SaaS companies. Uh, there are multiple metrics that they'll look at and they'll do a fair amount of due diligence, but that's really what it comes down to. And it's because they're buying a, a quote unquote, you know, guaranteed revenue stream over time. And, and retention really is a measure of the quality of that um, revenue stream over time. If you've got 50% churn, it's not really SaaS. It's not really long-term subscription revenue. It's a two-year contract. And it, in, and those companies get valued like a, a license software that, that's got a two-year license. So, you know, if you're, if, so, so the one metric on the growth side, if you're shrinking, it, it can be difficult to sell the company to anyone at any value. A buyer once told me, no one wants to catch a falling knife, right? Kind of graphic, but it makes sense. Um, flat growth is okay. If you're at, you know, over 40%, it puts you in a unique category. And if you're over 100%, it's, it puts you in a pretty elite category. Uh, retention, which I know you, you know a lot about, you know, the, the logo churn and net revenue retention is what really determines the level of interest and, and drives a lot of the value. I mean, other things, they'll look at your total available market. If you're growing a lot, but your total market's 10 million, you know, it's, it's a nice business. It's, it, it has some value, but it, it's got a really limit. It's got a cap on it. Uh, profitability does matter. Um, you see anecdotally companies that, that get sold for exotic valuations that are burning money. But I'll tell you the vast majority of companies that get bought and sold are at least revenue neutral. And what it comes from is even if they'll pay a premium for your company, they don't want to have to continue to invest in it going forward. They want to pay for it and they want the thing to at least run on its own or be profitable. And it's a leap of faith. Part of it depends on the gross margin. They can dig into it. But if you're burning cash, it, it does make it tougher. The other one I, I get throw out there, and sorry, I know this is more than three, is customer concentration. If you've got 80% of your revenue with one client, that might feel great while you're building your business. Um, that's a liability when you're selling it because if that one client goes away, your business is a fraction of what they just paid for it. So mm-hmm. those are kind of the, the the core metrics that they will dig into to determine the valuation of the company. Yeah, uh, and it makes sense. I think like obviously one on the last point, if you have majority of your revenue with one customer, that's a very scary place. I mean, even for a founder to be in. Um, but yeah, ultimately like buying uh, subscription businesses and SaaS is that you ultimately only have a subscription business if people are renewing. Uh, and like you said, I think yeah. the um, the revenue multiples then come as a result. And how much does the revenue multiple, how much is the revenue multiple dictated by um, the retention rate? So you mentioned logo retention and you mentioned uh, net retention uh, in RR. How much does that influence the final uh, multiple that gets given? Um. Dramatically. I mean, I think it's arguably the, the most important metric um, and, and the one to, to get right, really like focus on, on, on getting it right. You know, so if you've got, you know, if your net retention is, you know, 80% or below, I don't say it's a tough company to sell, but it, it does. So two answers to your question. One is it, it affects the valuation, but before that, it even determines whether or not a buyer is, is interested in pursuing it or whether they pass. If certain metrics are bad, they, they won't pay anything for it. So, you know, but if you can get, you know, 120% or higher net retention 
130, 140%, extremely attractive and really makes people want to dig and understand what's going on underneath. I think that says more than anything about the quality and the value of what you're selling if you've got high net revenue retention. Yeah. And if you're sitting at the 140 mark, I think you're really in sort of the elite uh, category there. I think some of like the category leaders that we see today and we've seen in the stock markets like perform over of late, like it really is like that net retention is one of the the main drivers. I think even in the public markets, you see with the valuations that startups are getting. And I think more and more now, like people are starting to understand the value of retention when it comes to growth as a really, really powerful uh, lever. So obviously these metrics are important then like, what are some of the things that you advise startups to start thinking about in terms of like preparing for um, due diligence when it comes to an acquisition? So obviously like the buyer is going to want to mention a few things. And you also mentioned like in the case, typically maybe if it's a competitor, there's certain like things you're going to want to share, but things you're going to also want to keep private. So you can yeah. make sure you're not exposing too much. How do you advise like founders to think about uh, what they, what information to provide through the due diligence process and what should they like be a little bit cautious of? Yeah. Some of it starts with um, the not so interesting back office stuff. And some of it's more on the, on the front end. I use the, 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 the house analogy, you know, quite a bit. If you're going to sell your house, you should, you know, clean up the yard and put some paint on it and, you know, get rid of the, the dirty carpet. Um, it's kind of similar. So there's some foundational stuff in the background. When it's three of you writing code and a business idea on a napkin, you know, spending money on attorneys for IP assignment, you know, doesn't sound like a big deal. But if you've got three founders, you know, or however many founders and, and people are touching the code and you don't really formalize things for a year or two, and then sometimes the three of you may not get along, you know, 10 years later when there's an exit, might I be in speaking terms. And the buyer wants to make sure that you've got a founder, that everyone that has written the code signed an IP assignment. If someone hasn't done that, it's common that someone won't have signed it. You need to go back and get them to sign it. And that can be difficult. So get your back office in order. Make sure your financials are, are accurate. Most small SaaS companies do cash financials, which is, which is fine. But the, the purchase will almost always be predicated on accrual um, financing. So they'll, they'll do what they call a QOV during the purchase. And they'll, they'll, they'll effectively create a set of accrual. But, but you want to make sure that you've got things accurate, that the revenue is accurately reflected. It usually is. It's the expenses where you'll see are not always accurately reflected. Just sometimes they just have a part-time bookkeeper that just missed some things. But you want to make sure that, that that's correct so that your business truly is profitable. Um, and under accrual, sometimes it, it, it may look like it if you're <clears throat> pulling in long-term contracts up front. It feels profitable because the, the checking account keeps growing. But uh, it might just be that your top-line revenue growth is outpacing your your expenses and on a, on a cool, it might look a little bit different. So, so that part, make sure you get it straight. And then, you know, I think, you know, it kind of comes back to on the, on the retention thing there, there, there's simple things I think people can do when you're building a business, you sign up anyone under the sun. And if they churn in some ways, you don't really care. You're trying to, you're trying to make money. You're trying to stay alive, generate more revenue. And as, as you well know, it does matter when you're selling your company. Like if you've got a lot of people that sign up and they, look badly on your churn metrics, you want to find a way to put them on a trial or make sure that they actually don't, don't hit those numbers. <clears throat> you know, people should, you know, long before they sell, take a look at, you know, client services and, and the effect on keeping clients as opposed to just bringing new ones in the door. 
I see a lot of companies who are really good at selling, but they don't give much thought to, you know, retaining people. And as, as again, as I think I'm speaking to the choir here, but um, it, it's critical that you keep people. It's much easier to keep them than it is to, to go bring in new ones. So those are, that, those are kind of the, the high level items to start off on due diligence. So. It's interesting hearing you say that, I think as well, from the perspective of like a lot of companies not paying attention to like customer success and client services, uh, because obviously I think I definitely have a bias from the people I speak to and the, the information I consume and, and I hear, and it definitely feels like that has changed a lot, but I do from time to time hear stories like this, where you go into companies and people haven't paid enough attention um, to churn and to retention and really like uh, getting the ducks in a row and aligned. Uh, and one of the things I think as well is like, Early stage companies, like as you say, you just want to get the revenue. And I think like the way, the analogy that I like to think about is like if you're trying to build a fire, uh, like typically what you're going to need in the beginning is uh, little twigs and a little bit of like fire uh, lighters and fire thing to get the engine and to get the fire starting to burn. And over time, you slowly like put in logs, which become your ideal customer profile. And those are the ones that are going to keep the fire burning bright and thing. But you're always going to be burning through a certain amount of this uh, fuel that's going to just need the business grow. But ultimately, you need to be getting better and better at understanding and identifying like that ideal customer profile. And like, as you mentioned, like when you have sales team, it's like the sales, this is who we're selling to. Like if this profile doesn't meet, it's like, then like you say, go into a trial or uh, find another plan for them. But I think early stage companies is very hard for you to just sort of say, okay, we don't want this revenue now. Like uh, we need to focus right. on ideal customer profile to, to like ensure we have good retention numbers. Because ultimately, I think there's always going to be a certain amount of churn um, that's acceptable, and it's about figuring out the right balance, I guess, uh, and the timing. As you say, like when it comes to selling, like what's going to reflect better if I like turn down a little bit of revenue in the short term to focus on increasing retention in the long term or uh, revenue. And that's also why I was asking the question of like what is more important. I guess is like is growth and new business versus retention? Like which one would you say of those two would be more critically evaluated? <laughs> uh, I'd probably say growth through uh, like high net retention, but that's cheating. <laughs> I mean, um, I get asked that question it, it, and I've asked that of some of the buyers. I, say, I get asked this question, like which one is more important? And they just kind of say, it, it, it just kind of depends on the business. Um, but I think, but I would say as you, as you reach the limits, like a high growth company with low retention doesn't have a lot of value. A lower growth company with extremely high retention opens people's eyes. So I think if you look at, if you built around anything, I think you want to build around net retention and kind of back to your, I like your fireplace analogy. I do think some people just don't stop and think about asking their clients who left, why did you leave? Right. I mean, just, just, but just having that mindset to why don't we, because <clears throat> that's who you want to find out, that get honest answers from the people who leave. Why are you leaving? You know, where, was it a wrong fit from the start? Is there like, what's missing? What, what would have made you stay and start closing those gaps? I think um, is often not very hard to do, but just requires, you need to stop and, and, and focus a little bit differently than you do for that heavy, you know, sales effort. For sure. Uh, I think another thing I like as well to talk about is when you told like asking customers, why did you leave? Another good way, top point in time really to speak to a customer is asking people that have just renewed. So if you're on annual contracts and I've just renewed my contract, so the same similar question lining is like, what nearly stopped you from renewing today? Um, because yeah. in that sense as well, you're getting like, what are those pain points, potentially some of the customers that end up leaving for, but you're still getting it from potentially like 
a better fit customer who stuck around irrespective of like the shortcomings that the product might have. And they're probably more likely to be responsive and to give you uh, that feedback at that point in time because they've still got to use you yeah. like another year or 18 or yeah. 34 months, whatever the contract length. Um, cool. I see we're running up on time. So I want to make sure I ask you a couple of questions. i ask every guest. Uh, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. You join a new company, join churn and retention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, lol, like we really need to turn things around. You're in charge. We have three months to do it. What do you do? The catch is you're not going to tell me that I'm going to go speak to customers and speak to people that left and identify the biggest problem and do that. You're just going to pick one tactic that you've seen be effective at companies in the past and run with that blindly, hoping that the same principles and tactics applied would work at this company. What would you do? Well, well, it's tough because the first thing I love to do is go talk to people and, and you know, that all that matters is what they think, but I, I think I dig into the, yeah, <laughs> I dig into the data. I would want to understand is what are the patterns in the data of, of who's leaving and why, like how long have they been around? Are they SMB? Are there certain industries or verticals that, that we're stickier in or not sticky with? Um, I mean, I would, I would dig through, uh, I mean, customer support tickets. I don't know if that's cheating. I mean, that's, that's, Anyone that's reached out or like, what are the biggest complaints that we see? Um, and I, I, and I, a lot of times I'll just do this myself. I mean, even when, you know, let's see, over $120 million company, I would, I would dig in. I wanted to see what that customer experience was like myself. I would, I would I'd walk through it because you can talk about it at a high level, but until you experience it as a real person, you're like, well, this is dumb. Like that was, I hated that experience. Why do we do this? Um, but I, I dig into the data and try to see if there's a picture in the data that that, that points me in, in one direction or another, and and even like a like a honestly like a word cloud on some of the the support tickets to find out what what are people talking about the most, the things that kind of jump out as uh, hey, this is this, these are things people are talking about, or this is a common theme, mm-hmm. um, or those yeah, and look at like you know who's turning the most? Is it people that have been around for a year, two years? Is it like one year people that are spinning out? Or is it people that have been there two, three years? I don't know. Again, I'd like to slice and dice it as much as possible to try to see a picture of it and then zero in. And then ultimately, I'd eventually want to go talk to those people, but to try to find out why they're, why they're turning out. Um, as, yeah, as well as talk to the customer support people about what, what do you, why do you think they're, mm. why do you think they're churning? It's sort of a cop-out answer because you gave me a minute. Yeah. That's a seat to customer. I'm going to speak to the data. Exactly. I'll, I'll sneak around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Last question then is like, what's one thing that you know today about general attention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Um, I, well, the one thing I guess would be, I think the simplest thing would be to categorize some people differently. Like until they're truly a long-term subscriber, don't count them in your metrics. I think just talking to, to buyers who are very, very good at this. Some are publicly traded. They're, they're very good at being smart about when someone hits those metrics or not. And it's two things. One, it hits the metrics, which, which looks good. Uh, but they, they, it also, it makes them better at screening out people that, that probably aren't good clients for them. So it's just a smarter way to do business. That, that was probably the biggest eye-opener for me. Yeah. So just to unpack that and understand a little bit what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is really trying to segment uh, your users better to understand sort of uh, what are the right fit customers in that sense and how that impacts churn and retention as a result. So 
from my understanding, maybe this is some like a similar episode we had previously um, from we were talking with the CEO of Avora Pulse was how they went about dissecting and looking at churn was really like they did sort of the exit survey asking why did you leave or, or thing and they got to realize that okay, 20% of our customers because we SMB stopped using us because they're small businesses and they went out of business. So that 20% is not really churn and retention. That's like just the nature of doing business with small business uh, yeah. companies. And maybe the same thing applies in, in sort of larger clients is where you realize, okay, if a customer is not a good fit, it's like they're going to come for two, three months and they're going to churn anyway. But finding that ideal segment, churn, did I get that right? Or were you saying something else? Yeah, I think it's almost like qualifying your buyers, like knowing who the right fit is or, or understanding who's just the bad fit. Like you can't fix it for them. Like you know that they're a high propensity uh, is a part of it. I think it might be different things for different business. Like if you're SMB versus enterprise, but I think if you're enterprise, in some ways it might be, um, we are not going to do a freemium model or, you know, we're, we're going to give you like a seven day trial instead of this, like this freemium upsell. And it's, and we're going to raise prices. Like it's, it's now you may lose a small percentage of people that, that would have upgraded, but it's going to force people to be the serious you to find out who the serious buyers are. They're not yep. going to spend that much money unless they're serious. You're kind of screening out people. Now, you will lose a few, but those that get stick it, are going to... Yep. Yeah, on the other side. Yeah, because I've heard of as well other companies, uh, and I'm not sure how much I <laughs> I believe in this, but other companies where they say, okay, 60% of our churn is happening in the first 60 or 90 days. We only consider somebody a customer after 90 days. And uh, when we look at retention, we're looking at retained customers for people who have been with us for longer than three months so they sort of like bucket in terms of like high churners like first 60 or 90 days we don't even consider looking at retention metrics during that period we start counting people as retained customers from 90 days onwards and uh i don't know it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on that because in my mind it sounds like i'm cooking the numbers a bit uh in this aspect when we're looking I, at churn retention well it does make some sense to in their logic yeah explain it yeah. I would I would consider that a trial. So the if the first ninety days are trial, but you can't just randomly look at the data and say, you know, hey, all right, one hundred twenty days, it looks good. Now it's sixty days. But yeah. I, I would I would consider that a trial. The first ninety days, it's like an employee on probation. You know, they're not an employee yet. They're they're uh, I don't know what they call them, but they're on probation, and and the rules are different when you're on probation than they are once you're a full employee. So put your put your uh, put your customers on call it probation and you can fire them and they can quit and it, and it's okay. But once they're a customer, then, then you get to work harder to keep them, but maybe, yeah. I don't know. I see the way you framed it as well. Uh, it makes more sense. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, well, Lo, it's been a pleasure chatting today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with like anything they should be aware of uh, before we end today? Um, I mean, I just appreciate how hard it is to to build a business. I think it's just helpful to um, take the time. I think as a former CEO in a business, it's easy to lose sight of the forest through the trees that you're chasing. It's really, really hard. Um, so I think take a step back, talk to people that aren't as close to it. Um, I mean, people like yourself that 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 can take a kind of an independent view of some of the issues that you're struggling with and. I think can help you solve some problems that that are tougher to do when you're you're in it 
and you're driven by the urgencies of the business. Yeah, I see that as well. Like, so founder as well, myself, sometimes you also get locked into your own biases and it's always great to have yeah. a different perspective come in and just like point you maybe in a different direction. You're not even looking. Uh, yeah. Well, Lo, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Uh, obviously for the listeners, we'll make sure to leave all the notes and any links to references we chatted about today. So if you uh, want to check out what Lowell's doing, uh, we'll also make sure to have the website uh, for Traction Advising there to check out. But thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. And I wish you best of luck now going forward. Thanks so much. Really, really a pleasure to meet you. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.